Praise God. I'm, uh, I'm excited about what God is doing in you and in us, not because uh, I think we have it all together, but because I know He has it all together. And if we can get on board with what He's doing, praise the Lord. That's a good thing, isn't it? Uh, in Luke 9, and we're going to look at this from a couple of angles. I won't just look in Luke. But uh, I do want to read something from Luke, and then we'll move on. In Luke 9, we see the story of, um, first and foremost, of Jesus taking three of his disciples up on the mountain and praying. Now, if you go through the scriptures, it's on the, it's next to the chair there, it's kind of on the heater. Uh, if you go through the scripture, you see that uh, Jesus took his disciples now and then with him to pray. It was, a, it was a, something that was very important in his life was that he was going to take time to pray. It doesn't always say he knows what's going to happen when he prays, but he goes and he prays. And everything he does comes from that place. In your life, if you think you can live a life where you can just read enough books or listen to enough good messages and somehow stumble through with the right information, you're going to fall short if you don't have a prayer life where you can hear from the Father, where you can be uh, filled and, and strengthened again. And so Jesus, when he needed that strengthening, because to give you background, his cousin John has died. He said when he found out John had died, he said, let's go away for a bit. Let's find some time to be with the Father. Let's take some time away. And when he told the disciples, take me to a secluded place, take me somewhere where nobody is, his disciples obeyed him. They took him on the boat. They took him to a secluded place, but the crowds found out where he was going to be. And they met him there on the shore. And instead of saying, I'm on vacation, go away, he instead took the time. The Bible says he was moved with compassion, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. And he taught them for quite some time. And as he taught them for quite some time, Eventually, they became hungry, and they were in a secluded place. There was no food to eat, and this is where we get the wonderful uh, historical instance where he fed 5,000 men and their families. But after this, he's still got to have his prayer time, guys. It's been postponed. It's not been canceled. So he says, I'm going to go up, and he takes three of his guys with him. Now, they seem to have a habit of falling asleep when he's praying. If you think the first time that happened was in the garden of Gethsemane, you're wrong. I don't know what it is about Jesus' prayers that put them to sleep. <laughs> but they went to sleep. And as they woke up, they wake up to see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. What would you think about that? Somehow they know who they are. Right? Like there's a recognition. They know who they are. Which kind of, you know, you, you ask, like, how will I know in, in this next life when we have these spiritual bodies that the scripture tells us about? When death is defeated. But I still get a body. You're not just a floating ghost. You, you, the Bible says you have a body, but it's a spiritual body. Somehow, these guys don't need name tags. They know who they are. And it doesn't look like Charlton Heston. It's actually Moses and Elijah. <laughs> And the Bible says that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his upcoming departure. That's interesting, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to know what they're talking about? Well, the Bible tells us. It says they were talking about his departure. They're talking about what's about to happen. Disciples see this and they're like, oh, this is amazing. All right. And so Peter, you know, the, the conversation ends. And, and Peter says, well, we should, <laughs> why would we go back down on the mountain? We should stay here. Let's build a tabernacle for you, Jesus, a tabernacle for Moses, one for Elijah. We can just stay here in this. Forget those other guys down there. You, bought, you brought us. We're not going down the mountain. We're staying here. I want to hang out with these guys. And then all of a sudden, this cloud appears. And it says, the cloud appears, and it starts to overtake them. And they walk into the cloud, and they're terrified. Because that cloud is the presence of God. And the cloud says, this is my son, listen to him. And they go, oh, okay, Jesus, what should we do? <laughs> you know, Peter's here like, you know, hey, let's listen to see what Moses and Elijah have to say. Hey, maybe we should do this, and maybe we should do that. And, and the father has to say, hey, this is my son, listen to him. 
Moses and Elijah are great, but this is my son. Listen to him. So they're oh, okay. And then Jesus says, well, let's go down the mountain. And they come down. And here's where we pick up in Luke chapter 9. They've come down the mountain. And it says in verse 37, on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, met Jesus. And it says, a man from the crowd shouted, saying, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. And spirit seizes, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and with only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. So it doesn't say the disciples said, we won't, or we're busy. They couldn't. And Jesus says, and answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Can you reconcile what Jesus said to this man and to his disciples? If we're to think of what we would say, they tried their best, bless their hearts, they tried. They didn't refuse the man. They tried to cast the spirit out. They couldn't do it. And Jesus doesn't say, there, there, boys, you gave it a good shot. You gave it the old college try. I can't blame you for it. Uh, maybe there's some more things you need to learn. No, he says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Can you imagine trying to do something, stepping out, failing at it, and Jesus calls you a pervert? That seems weird, doesn't it? Seems harsh. <laughs> well, first and foremost, we have to define what does perverted mean. In our culture, perverted has a very specific connotation, right? Perverted in our culture just is one type of perversion. The sexual perversion. That's what we think about. So you call somebody a, you don't call somebody a pervert and think that they're going to like you after that. That is a very harsh term. Even me, even as I'm saying it, you're like, I don't think you should say that in church. Like, I don't, it's not, I don't, you said it enough. All right, let's just, let's move on. Let's find a euphemism. <laughs> but in the scripture, this, the, you know, this, this word per, perverted and perverse actually pop up quite often, especially in the New Testament. As a reason for it, what does perverse mean? It means twisted, crooked, right? So somehow, let's connect unbelieving and perverted, right? So what is he saying? And, and, and it's important that we would think of the, that Luke is not the only gospel that tells this story. And in the other gospels, it says that he said, they said, well, why couldn't we drive this demon out? Because they had done it before. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Once again, not a comforting thing. See, we always like to believe if a miracle didn't happen, it was because God didn't want it to happen. Because then the responsibility's off me. It wasn't my fault. Or something happened, I don't know what it was. In this case, Jesus does not give them an out. He points a finger and says, it was because of you guys. Ouch. I mean, he's not going easy on them. He's already called them unbelieving. He's called them perverted. And, and he sighed and said, how long do I have to put up with you? You know that picture of Jesus as the shepherd holding the, holding the lamb? Why would that Jesus say, how long do I have to put up with you guys? <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know. Come on. I don't, I mean, Jesus, how could you be tired of us? We're the 12. We're the gang. We've been with you this whole time. He says, how long do I have to put up with this? And the reason is, is because there's perversity and unbelief, and those two things are definitely linked. He is not saying that these disciples have a, an issue with their sexuality. That's not what he's talking about. Something's twisted in their thinking. Something's twisted in their belief system. 
And that twisting is preventing. Something's crooked and that's preventing the, the work of God to work through them. There's something that needs to be made straight in their life. There's something that needs to be straight in their heart. And immediately when I say that, you think I'm talking about their behavior. But Jesus says nothing about their behavior. Because the disciples have been with him the whole time, guys. They're not going off and sinning on the weekend and joining him on Sunday. They've been with him the whole time. The issue is not their behavior. The issue is their heart. The issue is their thinking, right? They've got some thinking that doesn't line up with God's thinking. They've got some beliefs that don't line up with God's beliefs. Because he says, you're unbelieving and perverse. And he says, it's not just you guys. It's this whole generation. Well, you know, if we stop there, that's, that's, you know, if Jesus had said, so get away from me, you're done, you're fired, then that would be a sad ending. But the good news is, that wasn't the end of the disciples. That wasn't the end of the ministry. And in the book of Acts, we see over and over again, those same disciples are now doing those works and greater works than Jesus was doing. So take some hope here that it didn't end there. Why would, and we've been going through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and we talked about how Jesus said, how Jesus exposed the fact, he said, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You think you're clothed, but you're naked. You think you're, you can see, but you're actually blind. And it seems harsh that Jesus is saying these things to him until you hear what he says next. So come to me, he says, and I'll give you gold. He says, come to me, and I'll give you clothes. Come to me and I'll give you salve for your eyes so that you may see. So the reason Jesus is pointing it out is not to embarrass them, not to condemn them, but rather to say, you have a need and I have the way. I have the fulfillment for that need. I have the answer. So the reason Jesus pointed this out is not so that they'd say, yeah, why do you hang out with us? God, we're never going to try again. No, the reason he points it out is because they must do this again. They're the ones who are supposed to cast out evil spirits. They're the ones he's going to send. They're the ones who are supposed to go preach the gospel everywhere. And if you read the book of Acts, you find out everywhere they preached the gospel, demons had to be cast out. It was a regular thing. In fact, it's, you know, when Philip went to Samaria or Paul went to Ephesus, it's the thing that stands out above all the other things. So it's obviously a big deal. So the reason Jesus is pointing it out is not because he wants to shame them, but rather he wants to correct the crooked things so that they can move in his power, so that they will see signs and wonders. Of course, he tells them, you know, there are some things that you've got to fast and pray to get to that place. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you leave the demon-possessed kid and go away for three days, fast and pray and come back, because Jesus didn't do that. But where did he come from? He came from the mountain where he was praying. The man was prayed up. He says this is a wicked, a perverse, perverted and unbelieving generation. I think we have to understand that we're living in a perverted world. And once again, you probably need to click the dials in your head that just have one definition for perverted and realize that we're living in a crooked world that doesn't understand the righteousness of God. And in fact, rejects the righteousness of God. And there's two reasons you reject the righteousness of God according to the scripture. Number one, you reject the righteousness of God if you think, no, I don't want that. I want to do my own thing. But then Paul in Romans names and, and says, you know, uh, a lot of people reject the righteousness of God because they try to find their own righteousness. They're so religious that they think they're righteous and they don't submit to the righteousness of God, which is by faith. We think that people that are unrighteous are obviously unrighteous, right? We think we could see them, we could point out and say, this is why you're unrighteous. But in Romans, it points out people that have not received the righteousness of God because they thought they were righteous, because they tried their hardest to be righteous on their own merits. And because of that self-righteousness, they neglected, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. If we're talking about a crooked path, then we need to know that God has a straight path. And what's that straight path called? Well, it's called righteousness. His righteousness is his straight path. You go throughout the Old Testament, and there's many times he says, lead me in the righteous way, the straight path. Righteousness is straight. Wickedness. We even think about our English word wickedness. What does it sound like? Wick, wicker. The root word of wickedness is twisted. Witchcraft 
comes from the root word to twist, right? So if you a wicker chair, it's twisted, right? A, a wick on a candle, it's twisted. So wickedness means it's twisted. It's something's twisted about it. Well, God came to make things straight. The last thing that God said in the Old Testament was that he would send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah to come and make things straight again. And to reunite the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. The first thing chronologically he says in the New Testament is a prophecy to Zechariah. Zacharias, rather, about his son John. And John was that guy. So the Old Testament ends with a promise. The New Testament ends with the answer to that promise. I'm sending someone to make it straight. And if you guys know John, John didn't mess around with this. He knew his mission. He knew it very clearly. My job is to prepare the way. I want to read that for you in the book of John. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand that... um, that Jesus would need someone to come before him. Because to us, I said the book of John, but I actually meant the book of Luke, Luke 3. Because to us, you know, hey, did, couldn't Jesus do everything by himself? Couldn't he have, wasn't his teaching enough? Wasn't his preaching enough? Wasn't his prophecy enough? Why did he need someone else? And the answer is just what God said. Someone had to prepare hearts for what Jesus was going to say and what Jesus was going to do. And John was that person to turn their hearts back. Now listen, if a heart needs to be turned back, it means it's been turned or twisted the wrong way. Yeah. John said this in Luke chapter 3. Of course, most of us, I've, I've said this to you before, but I don't think most of us would have liked John. He wouldn't have been your favorite preacher. He's a weird looking guy. He's a weird acting guy. He yells at you. He stinks. Many of us would love a pat on the back more often. John was not a pat on the back kind of guy. In fact, his enemy said, he has a demon. He's got a demon. How do you know? He's weird. (laughs) But he was who he was supposed to be. Actually, the scripture says he grew up in the wilderness. We know that his parents were really old when he was born. I don't know how old he was when they died. But the Bible says he grew up in the wilderness. And I imagine when his parents died, he said, what do I know about my life? I know that my dad has always told me that this is what God said. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. So you know where I'm going to go? I'm going to go to the wilderness. He goes there and he's raised in the wilderness and then he comes back and he begins a ministry in Galilee and he, he begins this baptism, which is something you don't find in the rest of the Bible. We find baptism in the New Testament, but John's baptism was a new thing. It was a unique thing. It was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It was a baptism of repentance. And if you know anything about the Old Testament law, God did not say that water is going to wash your sins away. He actually said it was blood that had to do it. But God allowed, God, God in his, in this moment of time said, there's going to be a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. You're going to get dunked and I'm going to wash away your sin. Isn't that amazing? And it's looking to an eye forward. Here's the thing. God lives outside of time. It's looking to an eye forward to what Jesus was going to do. So these people are, are, you know, they're forgiven. My goodness. Their sins are removed, which was something that was so foreign to them. It wasn't something they were expecting. But John said when he first met, when he first announced Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's saying, here's the guy who's really going to take your sin. And, and we want to read what, he's, what it says about John and what John said. In Luke 3, verse 3, it says, He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I want you to hear that again. Make ready The way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the way of the Lord is a straight path. 
The way of the Lord is a righteous path. And he's saying you need to prepare something in your own hearts that's going to get you ready for the Lord to work in your life. What's interesting here is that we know that God, above all things and all powerful, if he had wanted to, he could say, I'm going to force your hearts to be right. But God gave you a choice. And he came here saying, you can believe this or you cannot. You can listen or you cannot. You need to make your path straight. You need to make some straight paths. You might say, well, how in the world am I going to do that? Well, he goes on and he says, every ravine will be filled. Every valley, every ravine, every canyon, every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked, the wicked, the perverse, the crooked will become straight. The rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. I love that. Everybody's going to see the salvation of God. Now, did everybody recognize the salvation of God? No. Jesus told them, you guys, I was here. You didn't even know I was here. Salvation was here. You didn't see it. But the ones that did see it are the ones that had their hearts ready. Something had, had happened. In fact, um, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but Jesus said later, he actually talks about, he says, if you noticed that it's the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners who are receiving from me, and you guys aren't. And he's talking to the, the religious leaders. He says, you guys aren't. And he said, the reason is, is because, I mean, here, they received what John had to say. They received this message. They received this, okay, I guess I need this. They had no illusion that they didn't need God. So they received it freely, Right? The biggest obstacle, you know, what's weird is the biggest obstacle to Jesus' ministry was not a group of people who loved sin so much they couldn't stop sinning. The biggest obstacle were religious people who thought they didn't need anything. And when John baptized people, there was only one group he yelled at. Well, he probably yelled at everyone, but there's only one group he rebuked. And it was the religious folks that showed up in the back. Because it was a time where they realized their whole congregation, if I can use that word, I know that's a New Testament word, but, you know, they're, they're, well, it's Old Testament too. Their, their whole group, their whole towns were showing up to see John, and they need to be seen at the event. And they show up, and he goes, who warned you guys? Who told you about this? Who warned you about the judgment to come? He said, if you've repented, bear fruits in accordance to repentance. And they're kind of put on blast, and <laughs> it's awkward. Look what he says. He says that every mountain, and, or sorry, every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. Well, what's he talking about there? This is the ministry of John. It was the ministry of Jesus as well. Was that John came, look, he did two things. When we're talking about a ravine being filled, we're talking about someone who is really low being lifted up. So who are those people? Those are the people who are coming to John that think there is no forgiveness for their sin. They think they're unworthy of God. They think they're unworthy of anything God wants to do. And John looks them in the eye and says, there's going to be forgiveness for you. And they get under the water. He comes up and he says, God sees no sin in you. And when Jesus came, their hearts were ready to receive because that, that, that unbelief, that unworthiness that they had held so tightly, how could God ever heal me? How could God ever love me? How could God ever, ever receive me? That had been taken care of by the words of the prophet and the baptism of John. Because now they say, all right, I'm forgiven. I don't know what that means. I don't know how, but I'm not that person anymore. He brought the low up. Then he leveled the mountains. Who are the mountains? There's those proud religious folks that show up and don't think they need anything. How did he level them? He leveled them the same way that the scripture says over and over again, the humble will be exalted and the proud will be humbled. See, if you can't humble yourself, you leave the door open If God, if, if, in the mercy of God for him to humble you. How many of you like the word humiliation? Anybody? It sounds like a terrible word. You know, if you look back on Thanksgiving Day in Canada, now most Canadians don't even really know where our Thanksgiving Day came from. We think pilgrims and Indians. That wasn't us, guys. 
those are those people of the South. We have a different Thanksgiving tradition. And, uh, you know, they were, some of the French explorers came and, 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 and were received well. Once again, it's a story of the First Nations and the Europeans getting along and receiving. And it was, it was a message of the fact that they survived and God took care of them. And, but, but one of the things they said when they instituted the first Thanksgiving was they said, it will be a day of humiliation. I don't want a day of humiliation. That sounds terrible. But the word humiliation means humbling. Humbling. So it means a day where we lower ourselves and we say, thank you. We did not bring ourselves here. We didn't save ourselves. You saved us. He says, the humble, I'll lift up. The proud will be brought low. So, so John looks at these proud people and says, you guys haven't really repented. And until you get that right, you won't receive Jesus. And you know what? They didn't. Then he says, every crooked way will become straight, the rough road smooth. And the result of a straightening of the paths, a result of the correction of the way they thought, the, what they believed, what was in their heart, the, the, the result of God straightening those roads in their lives, straightening those roads in their hearts, straightening those roads in their minds, the result was, was that salvation was going to roll through. God's rescue was rolling through. Healing, deliverance, all of the power of God was moving when there was a straight path made for him. Does it mean that they were perfect? Absolutely not. You look, they were not perfect. But God straightened some things in them, made a way. And unfortunately, we've all been at places where God straightened things in our life. And if we don't realize what happened, or if we don't really... <laughs> Um, um, embrace that change, we might go back to the old ways of thinking, the old habits. These disciples had cast out demons before. These disciples had seen the hand of God before, but something was twisted in their thinking. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it is other than it ties it to their unbelief. The littleness of their faith, Jesus says. And then he goes on and he even says, he says, it's because of the littleness of your faith. And he says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Which is amazing. Because he's saying, even little faith could move a mountain. But your faith was so tiny, it didn't even match that. Jesus. Jesus, be nice to us. Say something. <laughs> Tell us, go team. Give us <laughs> trophies or something. Come on. What's his message to them? What really was going on? And, and I, I don't know the source of their unbelief, but I, I imagine it might have had something to do with the fact that Jesus was up there and they were down here. And on some level, they saw themselves as unable. They knew they had to try. And maybe they knew how to do, say the right words and do the right thing, but somehow, I wish Jesus were here, not realizing that he had entrusted them with a the task. When John comes, he says, make these ways straight. There's something to be said about you allowing God to reveal things, thought patterns, habits, even behavior at times that is crooked, that God says, I want to heal this. I want to make it straight. Because what right now, you've got a kink in the hose. You know, when I was a kid, I always did that all the time. You know, if it's anytime I'd see a hose, the first thing I did was kink it. I'd kink that hose, and then I would find my sister. <laughs> I love her, but I'd find my sister, and I'd drench my sister. I'd kink that hose so she thinks it's off, and then I'd unkink it. And you know what happens when you take the kinks out of the hose? The water flows, right? That rhymes. It's the new song we're putting out next week. God is removing the kinks, the crooked places so that there's a road, a pathway for his spirit, for his salvation, for his deliverance. In fact, a pathway for faith. I want to show you a story in the book of Acts that particularly is uh, illustrating of that, of, of, a, of faith and uh, that righteous path, that righteousness that God gives as opposed to the crookedness that the world sells There's uh, more to say, 
from Luke 3, and I encourage you to go back and read it. And if you read it in all of the Gospels, Luke goes on and says that there were soldiers that came to him and said, what can we do to make straight paths in our life? And he said, well, stop taking more than that's owed you. Stop stealing from people. See, because God had already straightened some things in their heart. You know, this is where righteousness begins. It begins as a gift. They received a gift, didn't they? When he baptized them and said, your sins are forgiven, that was a gift. They could not earn that. Righteousness begins as a gift. It is a gift. Your status as righteous is a gift from God. It's received by faith. But that righteousness works its way out in your life, doesn't it? When you know you're righteous, when you know that he, I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus, it causes something to come out of you. And you don't have to do that. You can resist it. In fact, that's why the scripture says, put on the new self. You already have the new self. You already are a new self, but put it on. He says in Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let's walk by the Spirit. So if we are righteous, and we are, then let's be righteous. The scripture says in, in, in Ephesians, it says that, behold, now we are light. So walk as children of light. There's a response to what's already taken place inside. So these soldiers had received a gift. God had said, I'm going to forgive you. But now they're saying, so now something's changed in us. How do we live these straight paths? How do we live this life? And John said, very simply, stop taking more than this owed you. Something's different in you. Here's a straight path. In, in the book of Acts, there's this uh, little talked about story. And it was an encounter that Paul had with, um, uh, in, in Acts 13 with a Roman consul. And it says in, in, in Acts 13 verse 5, sorry, verse 6. Acts 13, 6, when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician a Jewish false prophet whose name, get this, was Bar-Jesus. Bar means son, son of. The man's name was son of Jesus. Now, I mean, it's, or Yeshua, Bar-Yeshua. Guys, Jesus was not the first guy whose name was Yeshua. I mean, this goes back as far as like, you know, Joshua's name was Yeshua. I mean, this is, this is not like the first time. So I don't think this, this guy's not named after Jesus of Nazareth. But it's interesting that his name is Bar Yeshua. He's got, he, he definitely is sort of a spirit of Antichrist kind of guy. And he's a magician. Well, that's warning number one, right? Like if you read some of the history of these guys, that, that in, in the um, Hellenistic Greek and Jewish world, there were those that held tight to the tradition, to, held tight to the word of God as delivered through the, the law and the prophets. But there were those who had adapted to the Greek culture, had adapted to the Roman culture, and had, had changed some things. So in Acts chapter, in Acts you know, 19, when it's in Ephesus and talks about these, this man that was filled with evil spirits, it says that there were seven sons of Sceva that were Jewish exorcists. Uh, Philip encounters a Samaritan guy who's a bit of an offshoot of Judaism and the Samaritan guy is a magician. So that these people walking around with a false, a false power. And there's a magician who has influence over the authority at the time. His name was Bar Jesus or Bar Yeshua. And in verse 7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. What's interesting about this is that there is an intelligent Roman ruler. His name is Sergius Paulus. This guy is not a Jew. That's about a Ro as Roman of a name as you can have. But he's adapted, he's adopted some of the culture, and he's let this guy come speak to him. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings scene, where that king's on a throne, he's got that guy whispering in his ear, and he's literally just possessed with something. This is similar. He's got, a, he's got an advisor that's speaking to him, that's whispering lies in his ears, that's controlling him. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
What's cool is this is, this is one of the first people that, that Paul and Barnabas ever encounter on their missionary journey. They've been preached in a couple of places. This is real early in their missionary journey. So early that we're, we're still calling him Saul here. And he says, bring these guys. I want to hear the word of God. But Elamis, the magician, for his, so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That word to turn away is the word that's used throughout the New Testament as pervert. He's seeking to pervert this man from the faith. And here's what happens. It says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. Wow. <laughs> you enemy of all righteousness. Listen to that. You enemy of what? All righteousness. Because the righteous path is a straight path, but the perverted path is the wicked path. And he says, you are the enemy of righteousness. Well, we know that New Testament, through the blood of Jesus, righteousness comes by faith. What's being stopped? This man wants to hear. He wants to hear the word of God. Faith is going to come. Faith is working. But there is a crooked path. This man is seeking to pervert the man's path, to make it crooked. He says, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Listen to that again. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? This man is a barrier between Sergius Paulus receiving the word of God with faith. Salvation has come to Sergius Paulus' house. He knows enough to invite the preachers to his home, which is something a lot of Roman governors didn't do. Most of Paul's interactions with Roman governors came with him in chains. This is an instance where a man is hungry for the word of God, but there is someone that's opposing him, that's twisting his thoughts, that's twisting his way. And Paul doesn't avoid this guy. He doesn't say, can you just please leave the room? He looks at him in the eye. And I want you to know that, our, that, that there is that righteousness of God that boils up in you sometimes. That does not skirt around the issue of perversion. That does not skirt around the issue of wickedness. But looks it straight in the face and say, you either turn or you get out of here. But you have a choice right now. You know, one of the things that Peter said, and we'll get back to this in a minute. But after 3,000 people came to the Lord on the day of Pentecost, it says that Peter was urging them with many different ways, saying, be saved from this wicked and perverted generation. Be saved from a wicked and perverted generation. Why? Because when those wicked ways and those perverted ways become straight again, there is a flow of the power of God. There is a flow. There is a move of God. Now, see, God is always moving. He's always working. But if there, when there is a straight path in our heart, when there's a straight path in our church, when there's a straight path, because you know what? The scripture talks about making straight paths in your church. It talks about people that are offended with each other. They're in strife. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb that is lame will not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So when there are straight paths, that's a path of healing. That's a path of reconciliation. That's a path where God's power is at work. He says, Elamis, you better stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. I'm coming to an end here, so hang on with me. He says, you son of the devil, my goodness. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. The hand of the Lord is upon me. Uh-oh, that's not a good thing. Not in this instance. <laughs> The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time or for a season. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So he's a selfish guy. He's not going to stick around. First thing he does is say, I need someone to help me. He's not worried about messing with this proconsul anymore. Now he's worried about himself. But I want you to just see something for a minute. Once again... God's taking care of crooked things so that they can be a straight thing. God loves this man, Sergius Paulus. And guys, let's just concentrate on the mercy of God for a minute. God could have made this man blind for life. Could have killed him. He says, you'll be blind for a season. Why? 
Don't you think that had some significance to Saul? Don't you think that had some significance to him who was made blind for a season but healed? And when he was healed, he was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that God doesn't just care about Sergius Paulus, but he cares about Elamis? How great the mercy of God. This is an old covenant. This man didn't drop dead. God had mercy on this man. We don't know the end of his story, but I know that God gave him a chance. It says this. Immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then, then, after the wickedness was taken out of the way, after the perversion was taken out of the way, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. There was a crooked path. This man had influenced this Roman proconsul to have his own paths made crooked. He was confused. Listen, sometimes we're, sometimes our problem, we're wondering, well, you know, what's wrong? Why am I not seeing the results? Why am I not seeing God's hand? In my, why am I not seeing the same things? And you notice what you're taking in when you're on Facebook two hours a day, taking in everything the world's telling you constantly, constantly being enraged by what's happened over here, constantly twisted by what's over happening over here. You're not thinking straight anymore, guys. And God wants to take the crookedness out of the way. And he wants to make it straight so that you can hear. So that you can see again. And guys, there's no shortcut to that other than saying, God, make it straight. Lord, I'm going to renew my mind in your word. Lord, I'm going to spend time in your presence. I'm going to spend time with your people. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the low places will be lifted up. And the high places will be brought low. And the rough ways will be made smooth. And a way for the Lord is going to be made. A way for the Lord was made on this day. God made a way. I just believe, I believe and I know, and I know you know, that our world is getting more and more perverted in every sense as the days pass. Because we're coming to a culmination, we're coming to a, to a, a high tide point where the glory of the Lord will be greater. And darkness will be great, but the light will be great. And light overcomes darkness, Amen. But we're coming to that point where it's the culmination of all these things that God's been talking about for centuries and centuries and centuries. And they're coming to a head right now. And we need to be saved from this generation. You've been saved from hell. You've, I mean, Peter was talking to people that were already born again. You've been saved from hell. You've been saved from darkness. Now let your mind be saved from the culture that you're in. Because you are not a part of this culture. You're a missionary to this culture. Do you know that? You are a missionary to Lloyd Minster. You're a missionary to Canada. This culture does not own you. You're not of this world. Any more than Jesus was of this world. That's what he says in John chapter 17. A way was made. So I say, God, make straight these paths. If, I, if my thinking is off, if my belief is off, if I have let what I've seen corrupt my belief, if I've let it corrupt the way I think, then thank God I know you can make it straight. Uh, things are made straight when I'm in your word. Things are made straight when I'm spending time with you. Things are made straight when I'm with your people. I want to tell you a quick story. We had a time in Loon Lake. You know, for most of you that know, uh, we, we have a sister church in Loon Lake, Saskatchewan. I pastor that church as well. And it is right on the border of the town and the reserve. Most of the people in that church are Cree from the Makwasagaigan Reserve. It's probably about 25% Cree, or sorry, 25% town people, 75% Cree. And uh, I think it's a wonderful lighthouse and example of the fact that God does not want us divided. He wants us together. Um, but, you know, that's not always easy. Because the world is telling us right now, there is a demonic move to divide us. And he's using fear to do it. Right? You got native people are afraid of this white people over here. You got white people that are afraid of the native people over here. There's a fear, and it's not of God, and it's sent to divide the church. And we won't have it. There was a season where this was kind of bubbling up, and God did something amazing. It was around the time where in November where we'd have a minister's conference here, and, and it just worked out that we had two weeks in a row where we could have special guest speakers. 
We had Tracy Harris one week, and the next week I had Dave McGrew. Both very wonderful men of God that we they really have blessed our congregation. Tracy Harris was at the church in Loon Lake, and during praise and worship, he began to sing and pray in other tongues, not loudly, not into a mic, just, just to heaven. This is just him. But Sister Ben is sitting behind him. Now, Sister Ben has since gone on to be with the Lord, but she was a wonderful sister in the Lord, an old, beautiful Cree lady who did not speak much English at all. So I would try my rusty Cree, and she'd say, Miwa, and like, nice, like you do. Okay, you're nice. You're trying. <laughs> Once again, bless your heart, you know. And, uh, but, you know, most of the time we'd use a translator so that she could hear and she would understand what was being said. So she's sitting behind Pastor Tracy. No one else is hearing this, but she's sitting behind. And as he's praying in other tongues, she hears perfect Cree. And it's a lot like we heard in that testimony. She hears perfect Cree. Not a white guy trying to speak Cree. Perfect Cree. She writes it down. She writes it down in syllabics, which a lot of people don't know how to read or write anymore. Writes it down in syllabics. And what she wrote down before he got up to preach, she didn't tell him until after the service, but what she wrote down is, I am a spirit. It's the Lord talking. I'm a spirit, and I'm going to talk to you about spiritual things. She wrote this down. He gets up, and he begins to preach, and he says, I need you to know the Lord is a spirit, and we need to think spiritually. And I'm going to teach you about spiritual things. She's like. <laughs> so the next week, so we're like, wow, that's amazing. The next week, Brother David McGrew is with us. He begins to do the same thing. Just in our prayer time, he's quietly praying in other tongues to himself. He gets up. And he says, I want to talk to you about praying in the spirit. How praying in the spirit takes crooked things and it makes them straight again. To see, a lot of times we're praying in our understanding. We don't understand. Our understanding may be off. God wants you to pray in your understanding, but sometimes you need some things straightened out. That's why we get into the Word, but it's also why we pray in the Spirit, because the Spirit prays out the perfect will of God. Paul said, when I don't know how to pray, you have to be humble enough to realize, I don't always know how to pray. So he gets up and he says, when we pray in the spirit, God is straightening things out. And Fred gets, Fred Thunderchild starts getting excited. And he, he says, excuse me, excuse me. And David says, I'm preaching, Fred. <laughs> and Fred says, but that's what you said. During praise and worship, I heard you say in Cree. He said, and you said it in good Cree. He says, I am coming. He says, I'm the spirit. I'm coming to make things straight. So we're all just like, okay, God's doing something here. And you know what? It was a work in us because there had been some crookedness of racism that we hadn't recognized. And God did what he did on the day of Pentecost. He united the languages. So we heard the same thing. And he was literally doing what David McGrew preached that day. He was making things straight. God wants to make things straight in you and in us and in our city. The prophet said, let justice roll down, roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That righteousness is that straightness of path. Seek his righteousness. You have to seek his righteousness. You've been given his righteousness. Now seek it in every area of your life. Live it out. And I want to close with this scripture in Philippians. And you, many of you know this well. It is a constant inspiration, exciting scripture for me. He says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves. Listen, he doesn't say you'll make yourselves. He says you'll prove yourselves. You can't prove you're something unless you already are something, right? Yeah? You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God. So blameless, innocent children of God. Those are three things you could never have made yourself. Right? I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. You are not living a nice enough life. You're not living a perfect life. No one is. 
So we could not be blameless. We could not be innocent. We could not be children of God if not for Jesus. But he says, when you do things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because grumbling and disputing is not from the kingdom. That's a crooked thing. He says, when we do, th- when we do what God has called us to do, without that, we are proving who we are. Proving yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He says, you're in the midst. God did not call us to start a colony. God called us to be a light in the middle. To be a city on a hill. To be the yeast in the dough. You might say, isn't the yeast sin? But Jesus told a parable where he says the kingdom of God is like leaven that works its way through the whole lump. He tells another parable where he says the seed are the sons of the kingdom that God sowed into the field. The field is the world. God planted you in the world as a seed. And he says this, you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. One translation says as stars in the universe holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I want you to know the glory of the Lord is going to break out in our city. There's a chapter in Isaiah that talks about if we will remove the wickedness, the pointing of the finger, if we'll give ourselves to the hungry, the poor, if we'll bring the homeless into our home. It says, then your dawn will break out like the light of day. He talks about then your righteousness will break out before you. He says, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He's talking about a day where the people of God stand up and are the people of God and righteousness rolls through and justice rolls through and the glory rolls through. And I want God to address the areas in me. Listen, we think crooked and we immediately think that, we've had, that it's something with wrong motives. And sometimes it is. But you know, crooked, I don't think those disciples had bad motives. I don't think they said, I don't want this man to be well. I don't think they said, I secretly don't want to do this. I think they wanted to. They asked Jesus, why couldn't we? He said, because of your unbelief. See, there was a crooked place in them, and it wasn't that they were bad people. It was just that they didn't realize they had some unbelief that hadn't been dealt with. He says, if you can, if you can allow me to straighten this out, you're going to see those demons come out of these people just like this. You're going to see people healed. You're going to see people saved. Sometimes you just got to stand up to those places of crookedness like Paul did. Look him in the eye and say, you will not stand in the way of the Lord anymore. You will not. The weapons we war with are not fleshly, but they are mighty. Amen? I want you to stand with me this morning. And-